Chapter Eight, Part Three of Chemical Phenomena in Life by Frederick Chopik. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catalysis and the Enzymes, Part Three. Since we know very little about enzymes except of their action, it is natural to found the system of the enzymes upon the kind of reaction which each carries out. Thus, the nomenclature of enzymes nowadays is generally taken from the enzyme action. It was found convenient to compose the name of the enzyme with the ending ACE, taken from the first described and isolated enzyme, the diastase. As the root of the name of an enzyme is taken the name of the substance which is decomposed by this enzyme, so we shall call starch decomposing enzymes from amulum, starch, amylase. Similarly, the enzyme acting on cane sugar, saccharase, etc. The chemical characteristic of the enzyme reaction or the special decomposition caused by the enzyme is very different. In many cases the action consists, as in cane sugar inversion or starch dissolution, merely in an addition of water, which is followed by a splitting up of the substance. Chemists generally call such effects hydrolysis. All enzymes which provoke hydrolysis may be united in the chemical group of hydrolytic enzymes or hydrolases. Among these enzymes different suborders may be distinguished according to the chemical order to which the substance attacked belongs. If esters or compound ethers of alcohols and acids are decomposed by enzymes, the latter may be called esterases. If they act on carbohydrates, carbohydrases. If they act on fats, lipases, etc. Other enzymes have the peculiarity that they split off the group NH2 from nitrogen-containing organic substance. Since this group is called the amido group, the enzymes must be named amidases. To such enzymes belong even the most important enzymes which act on proteids, the proteases. Certain enzymes produce precipitations in albuminous solutions by hydrolysis. We call them coagulases. Another group is characterized by the oxidizing effects of its enzymes. These are the oxidases. Their counterpart is formed by the reductases, or reducing enzymes. Further are known enzymes, which split off carbonic acid from organic acids. We call them carboxylases. Perhaps even the enzyme which causes the alcoholic fermentation by yeast, the zymase, belongs to these. For physiologists it is rather more interesting to distribute the enzymes according to their physiological significance in the living cell. Following the physiological example, we may distinguish three large groups of enzymes. Enzymes in the service of assimilation of food and of digestion, enzymes employed in respiration, and those employed in dissimilating processes partly forming the so-called end products of metabolism. We may maintain that all decomposing processes connected with the assimilation of food are ruled by enzyme reactions. The end of all these reactions is to form from the substances occurring in food the primitive stem substance, such as glucose from the carbohydrates or amino acids from the albuminous substances. Each cell contains such enzymes and is able to reconstruct its substances from the fundamental organic groups which are formed from the food by a host of enzyme reactions. In consequence of this, each cell is able to rebuild its own specific albumin from the food and does not take up the albuminous substances as they are present in the food without any change. We therefore distinguish two stages in the digestion and assimilation of food. One stage is merely analytical, a splitting stage. Here the different hydrolytic enzymes, such as lipases, amylase, saccharase, maltase, the proteases, develop their activity. 
In the following stage, the reconstruction of cell substance takes place, the synthesis of the organic principles of life. Modern chemistry has been fortunate enough to obtain even here remarkable results from experiments. We should remember that hydrolytic processes such as the decomposition of esters are reversible, and it only depends upon the conditions of the experiment where the position of the state of equilibrium is found, nearer to the ester or nearer to the products of decomposition. Analysis and synthesis are always connected. If a catalyzing influence acts on such reactions, it must accelerate as well combination as decomposition, else the process would not agree with the fundamental law of conservation of energy. We see that even enzymes which catalyze a hydrolytic decomposition must act even in the contrary direction, as a synthetic power. It was Van Hoff who first stated this postulate. A short time afterwards, A. Croft Hill published his paper on the synthesis of malt sugar by means of maltase, which had hitherto been known only as a hydrolytic agent. When maltase was made to act on a very concentrated solution of grape sugar, it was noticed that a considerable quantity of a compound sugar was formed from glucose. It is true that later on it was shown that this sugar is not identical with maltose, but consists chiefly of isomaltose, a closely related sugar. Armstrong then showed that a real synthesis of maltose can be made by means of another enzyme, emulsin from grape sugar. Emulsin is further effective on the synthesis of the characteristic substance of bitter almonds, amygdalin. When amygdalin is treated with invertase, the cane sugar decomposing enzyme of yeast, there are formed grape sugar and a compound which is a combination of glucose and the nitrile of amygdalic acid. Concentrated solutions of glucose and the nitrile glucoside brought together with emulsin form in abundance amygdalin, the original glucosid of almonds, as O. Emmerling has shown. Undoubtedly, synthetic effects were further observed when lipase, the fat-decomposing enzyme, acted on a concentrated mixture of glycerin and fatty acids. Finally, some synthetic effects are known from the enzymes which act on proteids. All these experiences render it very probable that the organic synthesis in cells is performed and regulated by enzymes, and we can no longer consider the formerly mysterious synthesis of organic compounds in life as a problem which is not accessible to chemical experimental investigation. No less important prospects lie disclosed at present relative to the part of enzymes in the process of respiration. It was Lavoisier who clearly recognized that the respiration of animals was a process analogous to inorganic combustion. About 1800, Saussure of Geneva, during his memorable investigations into plant nutrition, discovered the respiration of plants. Since that time, no doubt has existed that the fundamental laws of the process of respiration are the same in both the plant and the animal kingdom. It is true that in plants and in the lower animals, one characteristic is missing which most manifestly directs our attention to respiration as a process of combustion. It is the development of free caloric energy. But it is not difficult to show by means of suitable contrivances that each plant produces an abundant quantity of heat in respiration. We have only to keep germinating seeds in a dewer glass for several days to show that the temperature in the glass rises to 40 degrees and more. Careful isolation, therefore, is sufficient to demonstrate this production of heat. Physiological investigation taught that in both animals and plants the materials of combustion are essentially the same. 
most frequently large quantities of fat sugar or carbohydrates disappear during the process of respiration the striking feature in such chemical processes in life is that these substances are not used to produce new cell substances but in the first place to furnish free energy which is used to maintain the life processes the growth and the amount of respiration in a fungus or in germinating seeds show what great quantities of carbon dioxide are produced in a short time and how much sugar is consumed in respiration when we try to compare this vital decomposition of sugar with the sugar decomposing processes which we apply in the laboratory we shall find it astonishing what effects are produced in living cells without any high temperature any strong chemical reagent or electric current a lump of sugar may be exposed to the air for years without showing more alteration than it turns slightly yellow thus we come to the conclusion that organisms must possess special means which produce the rapid decomposition of respiration material the chemist schonbein of basel was the first to show that enzyme-like substances take part in vital oxidation he drew attention to the property of many plant tissues of turning a colorless emulsion of resin of guaiacum in water blue he then showed that the effect on the guaiacum resin is also found in the filtered watery extract of the tissue and that this oxidizing effect cannot possibly be obtained if the extract be boiled beforehand later on numerous substances were found to be such oxidizing ferments all plant and animal cells contain such enzymes but they act only on aromatic substances as phenols and resin acids on sugar or on fat they do not show any effect the explanation of this fact came from the discovery that pea seeds which are brought to germination without access of air produce a large quantity of alcohol besides carbon dioxide this process which is found widely spread in plants which are kept without oxygen from the air proved to be fully identical with the alcoholic fermentation of yeast even the enzyme which buchner had found in yeast and had called zymase was stated to be present in higher plants we must consequently believe that the primary decomposition of sugar in plant respiration is closely related to alcoholic fermentation if not identical with it this is another type of respiration processes in the living cell the aromatic substances on which oxidizing enzymes act seem to have very little importance for cell life until paladin of st petersburg whilst working out experiments on plant respiration came to a remarkable hypothesis most of the aromatic substances which are oxidized by the enzymes furnish dark coloring matters as products of oxidation this can be shown when killed plants are kept in vapors of chloroform in an airtight glass vessel quite commonly they turn a deep brown paladin supposes that such oxidation processes take place even in living cells but the reduction of the coloring matters following immediately no staining becomes visible the aromatic substances therefore transfer the oxygen of the air by means of oxidases to other oxidizable substances of the cell this hypothesis explains quite satisfactorily the existence of enzymes which act only on aromatic substances as well as the position of the latter substances in the metabolism of plants no small number of lower organisms are able to live without a supply of air or free oxygen pasteur discovered this important fact in yeast and bacteria yeast may live as well without as with oxygen and with some bacteria it is the same for other microbes the presence of air is deleterious 
as they soon die when brought in contact with a medium containing even small quantities of oxygen. The possibility of life without oxygen can be shown by the following experiment. A flask is filled with a culture medium of sugar, peptin, and Liebig's extract of meat. This liquid is sterilized by boiling and infected with bacteria from teguments of bean seeds. A quantity of soluble indigo is added to stain the liquid dark blue. Then the flask is well corked and allowed to remain for one or two days in the incubator at 25 to 30 degrees Celsius. After this time we are sure to see the liquid quite colorless, the soluble indigo being reduced by the anaerobic bacteria which develop rapidly and take the oxygen from the indigo. When the bottle is reopened and its contents poured slowly into a dish, we see the liquid immediately coloring greenish, then light blue, and soon dark blue, as it was before. This change is brought about by the reabsorption of oxygen from the air. Such experiments show distinctly that bacteria can grow without more than minute traces of oxygen, and that under such conditions the bacteria are able to draw oxygen from its compounds by reduction. Different results that have been arrived at lead to the conclusion that enzymes also take part in this process of reduction. These so-called reductases seem to be widely spread in lower and in higher plants. Finally, we have to report that enzymes take part in the formation of such products of metabolism as are no longer of any use for the organism. They are removed from it as excretions, or form in the tissue deposits which do not change. In animal life, a great quantity of nitrogenous substances are eliminated from the organism, as urea and uric acid. It has been shown by several authors that enzymes participate when these excretion substances are formed. When the bacteria which cause putrefaction of meat are preparing their cell substances from the proteins, a number of atom groups from the protein are eliminated as waste substances. Particularly when putrefaction is going on without sufficient access of air, many substances are formed which are responsible for the peculiar smell of putrid matter, and which are to be considered as bacterial excretions. Such are some compounds of sulfur, hydrogen sulfide itself, and methylmercaptan. Further, indole and scatol are substances which are very characteristic of putridity. No less must a series of phenols be mentioned as products of putrefaction. We have certain proofs for the view that all these substances take their origin from amino acids, which are the primary products of the decomposition of proteids. By splitting of carbon dioxide and of ammonia, the formation of the substances mentioned above is easily explained, and it becomes more and more probable that enzyme reactions can cause these decompositions. In the case of some of these enzyme reactions, we may be sure that they even occur in the cells of higher plants and animals, and are not confined to the lower organisms. After our short review of the immensely extended territory of catalytic and enzymatic phenomena in the living cell, we cannot but confess that the importance of such processes is surprisingly great. The large number of different chemical reactions which take place in living protoplasm, and which we know from physiology to be the fundaments of chemical phenomena in life, is comparatively well understood at present, on the basis of enzyme chemistry. It is true there are some most important chemical processes in living cells which do not yet form part of catalytic chemistry. I may here mention the unique synthetical process in plants, the formation of sugar from the carbonic acid of the air by the chlorophyll bodies of green cells in sunlight. But any day may bring the revelation that even here 
catalytic phenomena are at work, and nothing at present excludes the supposition that enzyme effects take part also in these phenomena of plant life. If we suppress our feelings of satisfaction that exact science has been able to penetrate into these mysteries of life, there are yet facts enough which show us how far we are from a thorough understanding of the life process. The striking feature of the present state of biological science is that nothing that we discover sufficiently explains the intimate connection, the marvelous regulation of all processes in living substance. Up to our days, the living cell has represented an unknown mechanism which reacts most accurately and corresponds to the present conditions and which possesses all abilities to preserve its structure and the species beyond the limits of life. An exact knowledge of the chemistry and of the physics of the living substance will undoubtedly teach us far more of these hidden combinations than we know at present. I cannot but add that there is nothing to indicate that the phenomena of life are ruled by forces which are different from chemical and physical energies in inanimate nature. The fundamental laws of energetics seem to dominate in all nature. The two principles of the mechanic theory of heat govern everywhere. In animate nature, no case is known where the principle of conservation of energy is not followed. The more exactly physiological experimental work is carried out, the more care is taken to apply quantitative methods. Thus, we have come into possession of a great number of data which invariably show that the transformation of energy obeys the same laws in life as in inanimate matter. In inanimate nature, further, we always meet with the important phenomenon that caloric energy can never be transferred from a colder body to a warmer one unless other special processes render it possible. By itself, heat can only be transferred from a warmer to a colder body. This law, well known in Lord Kelvin's utterance, that the energy present in the world has the tendency to dissipate, doubtless governs living matter as well as non-living. There is only one part of physiology which is not yet accessible to our methods and which we cannot prove to be ruled by the well-known laws of inanimate nature. These are the psychological phenomena. At present, we see no way to transfer physical and chemical methods to the phenomena of the psychical world. End of chapter 8